Welcome. If you're looking to unlock the secrets of the mind, to live a life that's free of care and anxiety, and to be the happiest you that you can be, then you're in the right place. This is Growing the Good, the Mindful Podcast. Hello and welcome to Growing the Good, the Mindful Podcast, with me, your host, Neil West. You may have noticed in the last couple of episodes that perhaps my voice was a little weaker, I was struggling for breath in places, and the fact is, I wasn't very well. In the interim, I've been for heart surgery. So, this is a programme, a special edition if you like, where I'm going to share not just my experience of the surgery, but how mindfulness helped me get through. It's very tempting to want to stay strong and healthy and never suffer any pain or illness. Many of us hope we will never have to suffer any pain or illness. Many of us hope we'll never have to encounter serious difficulties or challenges in our lives. But my own experience is that had I not encountered great difficulties and suffering, I would never have had the chance to grow on my spiritual path. I would never have had the chance to heal, transform and touch such profound peace, joy and freedom. If we don't experience suffering, how can we ever generate understanding and compassion? Compassion is born from understanding suffering, and without understanding and compassion, we cannot be a happy person. And that's Thich Nhat Hanh from The Art of Living. Teaching mindfulness to children is not hard. They're still open and curious not yet having imprisoned themselves with fixed ways of thinking and ways of seeing the world. More often than not, they have not experienced great suffering in the way that older people have in their lives, carrying this burden of the past with them into the present moment. Telling people they can simply put the burden of the past down for a moment to rest seems counterintuitive when someone has lived with the suffering their whole lives. The idea of not picking it up again can seem impossible after many years of forging a fixed mindset. Until now, I did not think that I'd managed any great suffering or difficulty in my own life, and this created a problem for me. Here I was, telling people in their 70s and 80s that they did not have to carry with them the heavy burden of trauma anymore, when they and I suspected that I had little authentic understanding of their difficulties. I wondered, if I were ever put to the test, would I be true to my mindful principles, or would I be overwhelmed by my own suffering and difficult emotions? The opportunity to put this to the test came sooner than I imagined. A chance visit to the doctor with a persistent cough led to two years of tests and investigations, and finally a diagnosis of congenital heart disease. I was at serious risk of a stroke or aneurysm, and by this point my health was declining rapidly. A trip round the supermarket would leave me breathless and exhausted. The life-saving solution was to be open heart surgery. I would have a replacement artificial aortic root and arch, and an artificial valve fitted. I was reminded of the Queen Mother, who when the Luftwaffe bombed Buckingham Palace in World War II said, Now we can look the East End in the eye. Now I was going to experience a difficulty of my own. I would be able to challenge all the mindful principles I've been teaching others and forge them in the fires of my own hard testing. I began by deliberately framing this as a positive thing. 
I was one of the lucky ones to get an early diagnosis. I would feel so much better afterwards. What a miraculous age we live in where such things are even possible. I'm naturally curious and open-minded and saw this as another fascinating opportunity to learn and grow as an individual and perhaps feel more qualified to help others as a result of overcoming my own trauma. I was inspired by a Zen story of a wise old man who looked over a cliff and saw a starving tiger and her cubs. The man knew that soon the tiger would be forced to eat her own cubs to survive. The old man thought to himself, this body is a constant source of suffering, and the wise man rejoices at expending his body for the benefit of another. Therefore I will cast myself down into the precipice, and with my body I will save the tigress from killing her young ones, and likewise save the young ones from being devoured by their mother. With that he threw himself off the cliff, and through his sacrifice saved the mother tiger and her cubs. The message of the story is that it's a great good fortune when through our own difficulties we're able to relieve the suffering of others, and I hope that whatever I was going to learn from this situation, it would have lived experience to the theory I taught in our mindfulness workshops. It isn't unusual for people to challenge a mindful attitude as some kind of trick. I've been asked by young people, why are you always so calm? And my own favourite, what's your real voice like? Everybody shouts, what's your real voice like? As though they couldn't believe an adult would talk to them with quiet compassion and listen without judgment. I tell my groups that mindfulness is caught, not taught. Only those who truly live by these principles can inspire others to want to do the same. Persuading people I've worked with that I haven't given them anything they didn't already have and that neither they nor the world have changed can be hard for people to accept. They want to believe that they feel happier or less anxious because of some magical sleight of hand that I've performed, rather than, rather than understand their own journey of transformation, a new way of looking at the world and their place in it. But theory is all well and good. This was an opportunity to build the theory on firm foundations of lived experience. As Churchill said, never waste a crisis. Was I afraid? This was a major surgical procedure with some risk. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll have heard me talk about my own efforts to overcome fear of death. I was not afraid for myself in the least. The truth was I felt a bit cross, inconvenienced, I was too busy to be ill, and if I didn't make it I'd be leaving a whole pile of stuff undone. That's something this whole experience has brought home to me, that our health is fragile and our time here is short. Neil 2.0 is committed to being more efficient and will get things done instead of leaving them as vague intentions for some undetermined future when I think I'll have more time. I was afraid for those who would be left alone to pick up the pieces, friends and family left with a big hole in their lives. It was a thought that made me determined to fight to stay alive and make a full and speedy recovery. It helped remind myself to come back to the present. In the present, everything is okay. Being pulled back into a difficult past or catapulted into an uncertain future is never beneficial, and when I felt my thoughts being pulled in this way, it was enough to gently remind myself, come back to the present. I went into hospital feeling confident. My leading character strength is humour, and I'll make light of a difficult situation by cracking jokes and not taking things too seriously. This was a puzzle to the young nurses and clinical staff I met, who were used to a more sombre approach. 
I also discovered that my dad jokes and cultural references were lost on the young staff, but I amused myself, and that to some extent was the main aim of the exercise, to keep in good spirits as the time for my procedure approached. They knew I was a science teacher, and I did treat the whole experience as being a bit of a field trip, showing interest and asking questions that meant staff told me more than perhaps they intended. The anaesthetist demonstrated her classical way of thinking by explaining the process in very scientific terms, exploring each of the systems in the body like a tree diagram. Then she demonstrated her romantic mindset by getting quite emotional, as she described the process as beautiful. I couldn't help feeling in safe hands with someone who felt such passion for their work. How often do our eyes feel with, fill with tears and describe it as beautiful when people ask about our work? Maybe we're doing something wrong. Remember the Japanese concept of ikigai? What is your passion? What makes you want to get out of bed in the morning? If you're not doing it now, when in your life will you do it? I also had the privilege of speaking to the surgeon, a lady from Glasgow of similar age to me. Again, my science teacher openness and curiosity meant we hit it off straight away and got chatting. We remembered our school days when computing was in its infancy, the BBC Micro being at the cutting edge of technology in most schools at the time. It's miraculous how much technology has moved on in the last 30 or 40 years. Being in the ICU felt like being on board the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. We also got chatting about her experience during, during Covid and how no one ever really addressed the trauma that staff were still carrying from that time and how she worried about the effects it might have in the future. Interestingly, she used a similar analogy to the one we use in the mindfulness workshops. We talk about the human brain and body and how it was developed for life a hundred thousand years ago when the world and its dangers were quite different to the modern world. In Notes on a Nervous Planet, Matt Haig explains his anxiety attacks in supermarkets by describing how a cave person will be overwhelmed by the sensory bombardment of a modern supermarket visit and reminds us that we are still that cave person. We talk about how we're still programmed with fight-flight-freeze responses to perceived threats, even though the modern-day threats are very different from our ancestors. In this way our response can be disproportionate and lead to anxiety and mental health issues. The surgeon explained that in a more somatic way, the body responds to threat as it has always done. When you undergo major surgery, the body thinks that it's under attack and responds as it would if you were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. The brain heats up and the heart races to give you the best chance of escape. Less vital system and organs, digestion, kidneys, etc. start to fail. For this reason, the brain is kept chilled during operation. And it takes a few days to get back to normal. I know I had conversations with visitors that I have no recollection of. My short-term memory was fried. The last thing I remember is having stickers put all over me and then darkness. A moment later my eyes opened and it was all over. The surgery had been successful. Piece of cake. Or so I thought. You are warned that your emotional state will be changeable and that euphoria is not unusual following surgery. This would explain the enormous positive energy I felt immediately after the operation. I was of course quite a bit younger than most of the patients at 51 and was still on liberal doses of morphine, but even so I was back to my old self, making jokes and conversation where I could. The nurse looking after me was from Nigeria and couldn't believe I'd just come out of surgery. She compared me to sunshine and that she would be telling everyone when she went home 
about the remarkable recovery from positive attitude I was displaying. This euphoria wasn't to last, though. There was a hint of what was to come. I were given my glasses back, and even though they looked like my glasses, and I could see through them, I was convinced they weren't mine. I asked the staff to check and see if any had been handed in. They were my glasses, of course. I was delusional, a side effect of the medication. It was the first night under observation in ICU when I experienced the greatest challenge so far. Even with the high doses of medication, I couldn't sleep. The beds in ICU are remarkably comfortable. Every few minutes they ripple like a massage chair to prevent bed sores, the patterns of the ripple changing each time. It's very pleasant and relaxing, but didn't help me to sleep. Whenever the twinges of pain entered my consciousness, a second wave would wash over me as a dose of morphine would flood my system and the pain would disappear. In spite of its pain-relieving properties, morphine is not my friend. Every time I closed my eyes, they would swim with hallucinations. I'm sure the experience is different for everyone, but the best way I can describe it is like this. Imagine going into an electrical store and finding the biggest high-definition flat-screen TV in the shop. Then, press your face right up to the screen and imagine your eyes swimming with an ever-changing kaleidoscope of pattern and colour. From this psychedelic swirl, unpleasant images and faces would appear. Trying to apply rational, positive thoughts to these images, telling myself this was an illusion, and trying to think of positive things, only seemed to make the bad illusions worse. All I could do was tell myself that this would pass. As the night wore on, the paranoid illusions became worse. I was convinced the staff were talking about me, and that the news was bad. My heart rate was dangerously high. My oxygen levels were dangerously low. I believe they wanted me to go to sleep so they could whip me off for some unpleasant surgical procedure. At one point I believed I heard them talking about my church and leapt to the conclusion that they were going to send for a priest. I was convinced at this point that I was going to die. Of course, I didn't die. The night ended, and though it had been tough, it gave me a very real insight into what suffering from schizophrenia and paranoid delusions must be like all the time, not just for one night. I felt quite cheerful in spite of my lack of sleep. The worries of the night had left my still recovering brain, and I was asked if I wanted any breakfast. This was the start of another interesting insight. When you have surgery, it messes with your digestive system, and it takes time to recover. I had no appetite, and really couldn't face eating, but agreed to have a banana, as it seemed the least challenging food on offer. Even then, I had to use a teaspoon and eat it in tiny morsels, my hands shaking with each mouthful. I was put in mind of mindful eating when we eat deliberately slowly to connect with the food and the wider cosmos, and tried to make a practice of the experience. I know my family visited during this time, but although they said I was quite lucid and in good spirits, I have little memory of them coming to see me. It would take several days before my brain would seem to function properly. But in a mindful sense, for now, I was quite li literally living in the moment. This fear of food would continue once I was moved to the ward. Concerned about how my digestive system would cope and feel of the con fear of the constipation horror stories I'd heard from others as a side effect of the painkillers, I approached each bowl of rice pudding like an unexploded bomb. This is very much not like me. I enjoy my food. This was another point of insight. I've worked with young people with eating disorders in the past and must admit it was a condition I didn't fully understand until now.
but the fear of food and eating can be very, very real. And I was fortunate to get over it after a couple of days, rather than live with the condition for years on end. Another thing I found was, in spite of the best efforts of the staff, when you're recovering from major surgery, you leave your dignity at the door. When you can't wash yourself, go to the toilet, or dress yourself, you rely on the kindness and professionalism of others to do it for you. I was put in mind of Ikiyu, the Zen master we've mentioned before in the podcast, who was keen to remind everyone that under the clothes, under the flesh, we're all simply skeletons, and all exactly the same. He wrote, who will not end up as a skeleton? We appear as skeletons covered with skin, male and female. When the breath expires, though, the skin ruptures, disappears, and there is no more high or low. Underneath the skin of the person we caress right now, there's nothing more than a set of bare bones. Think about it, high and low, young and old, male and female, or this, all of the same. Awaken to this one great matter, and you will immediately comprehend the meaning of unborn and undying. The first day on ICU, just before I was moved to the ward, was probably the toughest. It's when they disconnect you from the various bits of kit, remove drains and dressings and so on. No one procedure is that bad in itself. But having one after another, when you're a squeamish and have as low a pain threshold as I have, made the experience quite challenging. Breathing and trying to focus my attention elsewhere helped. One young nurse noticed this and asked, don't you want to look? I admired her natural curiosity, but declined her offer and continued to focus my attention on the ceiling with Zazen-like thinking about not thinking. I was put in mind of the pebble meditation we teach to grow resilience. I reminded myself I am strong like a mountain. These procedures took most of the morning, and when they took me off to the ward in the afternoon, my family had come to visit again. Whatever courage I maintained up to this point collapsed, and I was overwhelmed by my emotions. After allowing myself a quick snuffle of self-pity, I quickly rallied. I realised the importance of having family and friends around you in these times of difficulty. I had carried with me the thoughts, prayers and good wishes of many people, and that had really given me strength and energy. It's the idea of transience, of being part of something bigger than oneself. I couldn't countenance going through this experience alone, and yet I knew that many people have to do just that. A real challenge of kindness to self. It soon became clear that after leaving hospital you are dependent on others for quite some time. And again felt gratitude that I was surrounded by people happy to care and look after me. Gratitude was probably the most important mindful quality that helped me get through the surgery. Recognising that there were always people worse off than me. People whose surgeries hadn't gone as well as hoped. People without the support of family and friends having to cope on their own. All of this inspired me to dig deep and focus my energies on recovery. Finally, after nine days, there was talk of letting me go home. I was ready, and bags packed, but there was a problem. My heart was racing at 120 beats per minute. I couldn't leave until it had settled down. I committed to two hours of deep meditation, breathing and with each breath repeating to myself, I am home. My heart rate had fallen to 64 beats per minute, and I asked one of the nurses how long it would need to remain stable before they'd let me go home. In the meantime, I'd been delivered a cheese sandwich. I cut it up into tiny pieces and began a mindful eating practice that took me at least another hour. It was a surprisingly good sandwich. Finally, a deal was struck. I could go home, provided I agreed to return for blood tests over the coming days. I was given a bag of medicine, and my son pushed me down to the car park 
before they could change their minds. As soon as I got home, I began to feel far more relaxed than I had in hospital. I was able to sleep better, take a stroll around the garden and enjoy the sunshine, and receive visits from family and friends. Apart from a few aches and pains, I'd never felt better. I should have had this all done years ago. I had had my time of difficulty. It had passed, as all things must. What have I learned from this? That our lives are surprisingly short and our bodies fragile? Neil 2.0 has committed to make the most of what time he has. Embrace whatever opportunities come along. And never to regret not doing the things he wanted to do. Including this podcast episode. To finish, I'd like to return to the words of Thich Nhat Hanh. Thanks to our human body, we can feel, we can heal, and we can transform. We can experience life in all its wonders. We can reach out to take care of someone we love. We can reconcile with a family member. We can speak up for others. We can see something beautiful. We can hear the song of the birds and the voice of the rising tide. And we can act to make our world a healthier, more compassionate and peaceful place. Thanks to our body, everything is possible. We'd like to hear from you. If you've had any kind of similar experience, shared experience, you can contact us in the usual ways. You can contact us by email. That's onetogethercic at gmail.com. You can find One Together CIC on Facebook. Or you can visit our website, which I've had a chance to update as I have more leisure time now. Um, that's onetogethercic.co.uk. But for now, this is Growing the Good, the Mindful Podcast. And we will see you next time. This is Growing the Good, the Mindful Podcast.